Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. A couple emails to start off with, and we're going to start with the craziest. This is from Frank. And Frank, his, it was two emails. No, no sign-off, no anything. Um, first email, import cattle from warmer, hot climates? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is what Frank wrote. Um, oh, no, no, there's more. It said, low on unique ideas, question mark? Jeez. It was in response to we, – we, we, we broadcast a repeat of, a, of an interview that we did a couple of months back with an animal researcher out of Florida, University of Florida. It was about the mutation of cows, dairy cattle to give them this slick gene that mm-hmm. would give them hair that will allow them to deal with higher temperatures. They will survive, they will survive heat waves better. Yeah. Frank's cows. idea is to import cows from well, – import I, them? No, yeah, he he just thinks it's a lame idea. Doesn't explain why. And then his second email was, "Your program portrays the idiotic perspective of, and now all caps, the world." Is that the world, as in the planet, or the, bro- the show, the world? It, it, it's it's an email that Frank, if you're listening, send us another one and explain what the heck you mean, please. But yeah, we we did that repeat last week because I had Corona. Um, yeah, how are you doing? Third infection. Still Better. Kind of, still kind of tired. Yeah, um, but we're back. Mm-hmm. And Gabe, you have an email, a, be- a better email. Yeah, this is this was from Dave. I have been listening for a couple of years now, and after fact-checking you about a dozen times randomly, I settled in and comfortably enjoy the information, and especially like the breakdown on studies you present for sample sizes, etc. On your program outlining why people were still denying human-caused climate change, I was taken with the money experiment included in the justification. And this was whether people, what they would do with $20... And the the crux of that was that they weren't motivated or they didn't – their opinions on whether or not climate change was caused by humans wasn't motivated by the $20, essentially. Right. right? Which to extrapolate, if somebody's driving a gigantic SUV, that's not why they don't believe in climate change. Yeah, they're not just assuaging their, it, their, yeah, their, their it, guilty conscience. Dave essentially agreed because we were kind of stupefied by that. Yeah. Our, our, our minds were boggled, yeah. as they say. His was too. And then he writes, being wrong about that little thing reminded me how much I like having my assumptions challenged. It really is pretty great having to rethink what I know about the motivations of others. And nothing is that simplistic. I'll keep listening. Great. Thanks, Dave. No, yeah, really nice email. And I, I agree. From I, Calgary, Alberta, by the way. I love being proven wrong or having my expectations upended. And that's about to happen again in connection with an email from Isaac who wrote us, he's writing us again. We, we talked about his email before, and we kind of, we, we were trying to figure out how to pronounce his name. You said Isaac, I said Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote us again, and um, amongst other things, my favorite line, a longer email, he wrote that uh, I'm studying for a BS in space studies with an emphasis on aerospace science. If it wasn't for your show every week, I might not have even considered this degree program. That's awesome. Wow. That's amazing. I don't, I don't know how else to phrase it, how, how to better phrase it. But what he did is um, he linked us to a study that he found interesting. So then I read, read the whole study, and it did upend an expectation of mine. Basically, the study is done in Latvia, and the question is, um, if you were to try to look back and figure out when humans were alive and what they did during those times, how would you do it? We've talked about that on the this, on this show before. 
with regard to the Black Plague. How do you figure out where people died and how many of them died when there are no written records and where graveyards aren't necessarily there? How would you know Hmm. that they got killed? There it had to do with pollen because we humans, we farm things and certain pollens are emitted. And you can go back and look through the stratified layers of dirt and figure out when that pollen vanished and hence the people who were planting, eating. Were, who were well, yeah. who were planting those crops, or weren't farming the yeah. A very interesting way to think about how to look backwards and figure out when humans were doing what. This Latvian study is about is using microplastics. So if you go into the bottom of lakes, and in this case, three Latvian lakes, in that sediment, starting in about the 1950s, was when they did this. You can see microplastics building up, mm. and of course, not very many at the beginning, and then in the last two decades, boom. Right? We are producing unbelievable amounts of plastic. You can see that in the, in the lake sediment. And so the idea would be, could we look at the stratified layers of sediment in these lakes and figure out exactly when human beings were making these plastics? And that is operating under the assumption that the microplastics will be around when these people or, or when these beings are trying to assess when we lived? Sure, sure. The half-life yeah, I, of plastics are, is, e- is, is long enough? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they would survive that. That plastic you, is there forever. Probably. In a way. Yeah. Um, until it goes, you know, gets melted as it gets deeper and deeper in the earth. Yeah. Speaking of half-life, one of the ways they can figure out how old the sediment is, is with a half-life of a, a lead isotope, lead 210. Mm. So they know how old the sediment is. And they went into this thinking, well, we, then we can figure out, you know, we can track when and where the microplastics started happening. It didn't work. So oddly, as microplastics have different forms and shapes, the ones that are small, like a little ball, ended up somehow getting down deeper than they should have, all the way down to like 1813. Screwing the whole order up. In one of the lakes. And the conclusion of the whole study was, hmm, this doesn't really work. Now, if you're 50 million years in the future, you're not going to be looking for, you know, this year or that year. It's going pro- to give you a basic measure of when humans were doing what, if you mm-hmm. can find those. But for very specific measurements in the sediment, in lakes, of what we were doing and when, it's more complex than you would think. That's the, whole, the conclusion of the study. Wow. Thank you, Isaac, for, for your email and for that study. I got one here about um, anthropomorphism. The idea that we take an object and make it, we, we, give it, we, we give it human attributes. Let me go to Merriam-Webster for this. The attribution, oh, you were almost right on it. Was I? Yeah. The attribution of human form or characteristics to a non-human being. Okay. So the classic, anyone who's seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, he has this volleyball, Wilson. 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 Wilson! Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is anthropomorphism at its most extreme. We're going to be looking at the anthropomorphism of products today. And, and what, if a product has human characteristics, whether, whether we would maybe want to buy it more or pay more for it. This study was done in Indiana. This is the University of Indiana. They had 50 students there. So there's your caveat right there. Very small sample size. And those 50 students were looking at a laptop a TV, and a camera, Mm -hmm. either with human characteristics, so a laptop given eyes and a nose. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. A nose on a laptop? Where? At the the top? Okay, they were given human physical characteristics, quote, eyes, a mouth, and a nose, and human-like movements, such as blinking and mouth movement while talking. If the computer did those things, had these human-like characteristics... Or Or the TV. 
or the... Hold on, I'll get to those later. Let's stick with the computer for now, because this is important, the difference between the computer mm-hmm. and those two other things. The, the students were willing to pay 20% more for it in an eBay-like setting. Okay. So they bid on this laptop. <laughs> they, they wanted to spend $1,680 <laughs> instead of 1400 oh, no. because it had a nose oh, no. and because it was talking. There <laughs> are electronics manufacturers around the world reading this study, and it's going to have horrific results in the f- next five years. Everything's going to have a nose. With, with the camera and with the TV, that did not happen. Oh, Okay, right? just the laptop. Paid the same. So only the laptop. And they all, the, the participants also had their brains analyzed while this was happening. They had an EEG going on. And in the parietal lobe, there was way more activity. That is the part of the brain that is active in understanding our environment, sense perception, but also our ability to understand where we are and thus help us make decisions. So this has, in effect, when you are thinking about buying a product that is complex or is already maybe already has some kind of human uh, functions. A computer kind of well, talks you, to you. you and, interact with it a lot. Yeah, and it and it does very complex things for you. So in that case, the computer this worked. If you anthropomorphize a computer, people are willing to spend way more on it. Okay, it doesn't work with the other products. That Com- is the computers. absolute conclusion of the study. I'll read it right here. We are more likely to anthropomorphize a product if it already has some human-like functionalities, such as the ability to respond and speak in a human voice, present some level of human knowledge, or have some autonomy in how it functions. Great. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the computers with noses and eyes and smiles are coming soon. One last study here, real quick. For those of... It's really... I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it for those of you out there who feel like people have become less empathetic over the last half decade. I feel that. Yeah, a lot of people do, mm-hmm. anecdotally. That I feel myself, I've become less empathetic. I, 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 would, kind, I would kind of say the same with me. Yeah, More yeah. frustration, you're just... Yeah. Anyway, if you feel... I don't have time for other people. Yeah. There's a study done in Würzburg, Germany, in, uh, in Bavaria here. And what they did is they established pretty clearly, in my view, that empathy is infectious. It's like a... Like, contagious. I, it's contagious. In a good way. You see, you've got people around you who are being empathetic, kind, thinking about others, then you yourself will start adapting those traits, doing, doing that? Yes. Uh, so in this specific study, two videos, mm-hmm. and a hand basically gets smashed. Oh, ouch. In the video. Oh, yeah. Watching a video of a hand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Bam, this hand gets, I mean, not, com- not graphically violent, but ouch. Yeah. So then you see a person who is either empathetic to the person whose hand has gotten smashed or not. Okay. And that changes... Um, people's empathetic reactions to the person who had their hand smashed. How do you measure the empathy? Uh, They had a survey, but that was already pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. What was more interesting is that they had them in an fMRI machine. They're scanning their brain, and they could see in the part of the brain that's responsible for empathy, Mm -hmm. higher activity. So Mm -hmm. these people were not parroting it. They were not trying to look more empathetic because they'd just seen it. Genuinely feeling the empathy. Yes. What's the lesson for everyone out there? If you demonstrate empathy and others are around you, you are changing very slightly your little pocket of the world. Those people are now more empathetic. Be empathetic and show it. Show it to the others. The next time you're around others. That is, you will change them in, in possibly the most positive way possible. What a wonderful form that of mimesis. That is, that, yeah. is the, that is the essence of mimesis right there. Positive mimesis. Any... Questions, comments, personal experiences that either jibe with what we've been discussing here or not at all, please get in touch with us. And especially you, Frank. 
tell us what the heck your emails meant, man. I don't, I don't know what's going on. SU at DW.com. On April 7th, Rwanda will commemorate a tragedy, basically, a horrific, appalling tragedy, 30 years since the genocide of between 500,000 and 1 million Rwandans. Can the people who committed the crime of genocide ever re-enter and reintegrate and become a part of society again because the ones who have served the the longest the maximum sentence for genocide they are now out we're going to be speaking today with a researcher who interviewed 168 of these people before they were released from prison and four months after they were released from prison and the question is will they ever be able to become rwandan again Unscripted. Hello, my name is Holly Nysetzi-Tatira. I am an associate professor of sociology at Ohio State. I study genocide, and today I'll be talking about the genocide in Rwanda and specifically what's happening as people who committed genocide and spent time in prison have been coming back to their communities. So you weren't looking into uh, how each of these individuals was dealing with the fact that they used a machete against former friends or former neighbors or former fellow citizens. You were more interested in how society welcomes them back. What is a successful reintegration into society after genocide? What does that look like? Yeah, so I'm interested in both how they are dealing with it personally, as well as how their community is accepting them or not. And I think it's a dual process, right? So as they're coming back from prison or from community service camp, they are internally grappling with the fact that they committed genocide, that they're going back to communities where they're known as people who committed genocide. And they're trying to figure out how are they going to apologize to individuals? How are they going to interact with the family members of the people that they killed? For most of the people in the study, they are incredibly remorseful. They are trying to figure out how to apologize to the people that they harmed. And by the four-month mark, many of them already had apologized to the people that they harmed. And broadly, were sharing a narrative of how they had changed and they wanted to be re received as redeemed individuals, as people who had changed and as people who could be viewed as ordinary Rwandan citizens and who would not forever be known as perpetrators of genocide. If I'm totally honest, I this makes me angry to hear. Because if, it, if somebody came out of prison who had committed genocide and was saying, I'm so sorry for it and I hope you reintegrate me, I, my, my natural instinctual reaction as a human, I would want to kick them out of my neighborhood, tell them, stay away from me. I don't believe you. You know what I mean? So I, that's, that's terrible to say out loud, but it's my, my honest reaction. And I guess what I'm really asking is um, why, why I believe I probably should have empathy 
where I don't right now. And can you explain to me why I should? It's definitely hard. So for a larger part of this project, I've spoken with 74 people who did survive the genocide and have asked them these very questions. Many people have underscored that it is certainly hard to see these people back in their communities and that they thought that 20 or 25 years was a long sentence until they saw the people come back to their communities. That said, many have also underscored that they want to try to live together once again. They believe that in order to have a country that does not see violence in the future, it's important to at least try. So I wouldn't say that people are fully being successfully welcomed, that everything is 100% rosy, but rather that survivors are open to the idea to having these individuals back in their communities and that they want to try to see if some form of reconciliation is possible. Holly, what's it like to sit down with someone? I mean, I'm assuming you did these interviews in person in Rwanda. What is it like mm-hmm. to sit with with these people, with somebody who took a machete and sliced a, sliced up a number of people, that people that that person knew in, in their neighborhood? What's that like? You know, for genocide studies, there's a, a thing that we often tell students is something called the banality of evil. And this is the, the research finding that's consistent across a number of genocides that the people who commit genocide are often incredibly ordinary individuals. And this does not mean to take away from the sheer horrors of genocide, from how evil it is, but rather it's meant to emphasize that many of the people who commit genocide were not violent before the genocide, were people who were, you know, fathers, mothers, teachers, priests, people who had good relationships in their communities and who had a lot of social ties, and then during the genocide committed incredibly egregious acts. And I say all that to say when you sit down with these individuals, in most instances, it can feel like a very normal conversation. You can talk about your children, you know, what you had for breakfast, the weather, and then you kind of almost forget what happened and what they did until you get to that part of the interview. And it can sort of serve as a cognitive dissonance where they they seem like a, a very kind individual. And then you're hearing about these atrocities that they committed decades ago. It's a very strange experience, to be honest. And even though it was decades ago, they are now saying, or a, a majority of them are now saying that they're good people. Do you believe that? Well... Yes and no. So many of the people in this study did try to emphasize that they have become good people, that they are working to be good people, and that this is an identity that they are and that they aspire to. In terms of the research, whether or not I believe it stems more from their actions. So I do believe that how they see themselves is important. And in research on violence, we know that if people see themselves as redeemed and as good people, they're a lot less likely to commit violence in the future versus if someone sees themselves and and sort of adopts an identity as someone who commits violence as a bad person, this type of individual is a lot more likely to go on to commit violence. So it's actually really important for these individuals to see a shift in themselves if they're not going to commit violence in the future. What is the point? ultimately of, of your research is it is it to it, it, the idea really is that when hundreds of thousands of people have participated in genocide the idea is to to successfully reintegrate those people in, in into society into into a community and that that 
that should work better than it does? You know, the point of the research is to understand, is that possible? And if so, how is it possible? Genocide is something that occurs worldwide. By most counts, there have been over 40 genocides since the Holocaust. This isn't something just isolated to certain locations. And this means that I think it's really important to consider what happens after genocide. How do communities rebuild? If in Rwanda there was no reintegration happening, if people were being ostracized, if we could sort of paint that picture, what would likely be happening then is that these individuals might be returning to violence, that their children might be returning to violence. Because if you think of each of these 240,000 individuals, they're all tied to children, to spouses. So this is a broad group of society. And if all of these individuals were ostracized and not allowed to return, this could set up a really dangerous situation that would perpetuate cycles of violence for years to come. So even though it's incredibly uncomfortable to think about people coming back to their communities, and as I mentioned before, should not be incumbent on survivors to have to welcome people back, I think many Rwandans realize the gravity of this situation, that cycles of violence cannot continue and want to do something to try to stop cycles of violence to truly live up to those large words never again that a lot of folks say but that in practice is pretty difficult there might be people in their homes all over the world right now listening to you what should they take away from from your work or what 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 do you have to teach them that would <laughs> that would broaden their understanding of the, of the human condition or, uh, uh, or, or make their day better? What can you tell them? Yeah, uh, gosh, what a good question. I, I'd say a few things. One of the things I, I haven't really emphasized yet in this discussion is how most Rwandans understand the genocide and understand why people participated in it. So if you ask a Rwandan today, whether they have very little education, whether they're highly educated, whether they're a survivor or not, why does someone commit genocide? Most people are not going to tell you they're horrible, they're evil, and they're not going to focus on individual characteristics. They're going to focus on very structural factors that caused the genocide. So if you ask a Rwandan, why did someone commit genocide in 1994? Nine times out of 10, you're going to get an answer that sort of sounds like, well, to understand why someone committed genocide, we have to understand colonialism in Rwanda. And we have to understand what happened when Belgium came in and altered identities and created identity cards that then shaped local politics. And we have to understand the government and what it was doing. And people will tell you these very structural narratives that paint a picture of how genocide was possible. And this is critical, I think, to people understanding and perhaps even tentatively welcoming the people who committed genocide because they understand that there were a lot of societal processes shaping their actions. I say all of this to say that what we can learn from this is that the narratives of violence matter. And if we think about trying to understand why someone does what they did during genocide, having a structural narrative and understanding a country's history is critical to paving the way for future peace. That was Holly Nyset Enzitatira speaking to us from Columbus, Ohio. I believe she teaches at the Ohio State University. And in her last answer there, uh, when it comes to 
what people should take from this interview. She she said you you would have to speak to someone somebody actually from Rwanda mm-hmm. to get a sense of whether these people can be welcomed back into society. And we have someone from Rwanda in the studio with us right now. Thank you for joining us, Isaac. Isaac Mugabe from DW's Africa section. Yes, uh, thank you guys for having me. Of course. Isaac, um, how do you view, what would this process be called, reintegration? Is it it possible? Is it happening in the way that Holly explained to us that people are, are welcoming genocidaires back into their community? Well, it's possible because the government wants it that way. The people have no much say about it. It's a kind of reconciliation that was pushed by the government. The question is, are communities really ready to welcome them? Of course, they have two, if I may emphasize on that, because the government wants them too. But deep down, it's a different story. That's way more important. So Mm. when you are back in Kigali, Mm -hmm. in Rwanda, and you see someone who was part of these killing groups, mm-hmm. what does that feel like? For me personally, I don't think they deserve to be out in all honesty. They're supposed to pay for the crimes they committed. And there's so many people who feel that way. And I wouldn't associate so much with them, you know, because I don't know what goes down, deep down in their hearts, whether they're truly sorry for the crimes they did or given the opportunity, they would finish up the unfinished business. They say that they're that they've changed, that they're good people again. Do you you don't believe that? Well, luckily enough, I happened to interview some former convicts, if I may put it that way, that were released, just like the the recent batch way back ten years ago, and they told me the same story. Fast forward after two years, they were caught up in the same I mean crimes of hate you know, towards the people that they killed and they had to be taken back to jail. So for me, the program is somehow flawed. You know, really they need real psychologists to really find out, external psychologists really to to enter into their brains and see really if these people mean what they say. So in that particular case, they got out, mm-hmm. killed again uh-huh. and went back to and jail. went back to jail. Are you saying they should stay in jail then? Forever? Or are you saying they're, I don't know, move somewhere else? No, personally, I think they should stay in jail regardless where it is, you know, but stay, you know, incarcerated, if I may put, put it that way. Because I, I really, personally, I know and I've spoken to survivors of the genocide, people who lost their family members. I also have members who, who, who were killed in 1994. And I was lucky I covered these stories, but some people don't have access to leaders to question them. You know, why these people are being released? Why, like I said, because they've they have, they have been obliged to say they are going to come out and you'll be obliged to stay with them because they're remorseful. But I think the majority of Rwandans silently behind closed doors and walls where the walls can't listen anything, they're like, no, they should stay there. It's been 30 years now. Yes. Since the genocide and a lot of words have been spoken about it. Are, are you are you tired of, of talking about this or is it is it still important for us here in Germany or, or anywhere around the world, people are listening to this right now, to be talking about this? Yes, it is important because the memory of victims shouldn't fade away, you know, we, like like wind blowing away the dust, you know. But again, for me, it still comes to really 
are there lessons learned? Because I think 1945, I'm not so sure, when the UN said never again, you know, never again to genocide. But we still see killings going on and <laughs> people given a chance, they can even get back the machetes and, and do it again. So I think it's important that you guys are talking about it, you're covering it, so that the people who listen to, to you will say, oh yes, if there was someone having thoughts of, you know, carrying a machete and killing, they, you know, kind of don't do it. You know, but I think it's important, especially also for the, for the victims of the genocide, so we remember them. We shouldn't forget them. The moment you don't talk about them, it's like you're denying that the genocide happened. You know, that's why we have... April 7th as the International Day for the reflection on the genocide in Rwanda. It's a day that the UN imposed so that everyone knows about what happened in Rwanda. Otherwise, if, if we don't talk about it, then it fades away and that's how history is easily forgotten. Science Unscripted. DW, made for minds.